Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. Hi friends, just a quick note on today's recording. Uh, about three quarters of the way in, um, our recorder ran out of batteries. Yes, it happens. Um, so I went ahead and uh, recorded just the last uh, part of the message for you. So you might notice a, a little fade out, a quick little change in uh, quality of the audio. But I uh, want to make sure you got the full teaching. Um, so appreciate your, your grace there. And I pray that you enjoy the message. God bless. So this wraps up um, our, our teaching on the Apostles' Creed. And uh, this really, uh, you know, has just served as kind of a foundation for us in terms of what we believe. This has served as a, a test of orthodoxy for 1,500 plus years in the Christian faith. Um, but as, as we began this um, two, two gatherings ago, we talked about this idea of if you're going on a journey, right, you need a map or several maps, especially if you're walking somewhere of, of a long distance, right? We talked about having a large scale map where you need to know the elevation change, you need to know uh, the creek that's over there and the cliff that's over there so that you don't fall off the edge of the cliff as you're walking and not paying attention. You need that large scale map, but you also need a small scale map, one that can show you from really far away the shortest distance between two towns if you're walking so that you're not wasting time walking miles in one direction when you could be making it a lot quicker uh, that way. And so we think about the Bible and, and a million plus words is like that large scale map, the one that gives you all the details of, about God and our life and how to live this life in a way that honors him. And the Apostles' Creed, with about 100 words to it, is that small scale map, the one that can kind of show you high level from point A to point B. And so we've gone through this teaching and we started the first one uh, focusing on God the Father, right? The first sentence, the biggest section of the Apostles' Creed is about Jesus the Son. And then finally, today, we're going to wrap up by talking about Holy Spirit. So well, what's good, what's just helped to frame that is we see the, the Father creates, we see that the Son rescues, and then we see that the Holy Spirit recreates. It's part of the different uh, functions within the Godhead, the Trinitarian God. And there's an interesting theological order to the part that we're going to look at today. But what I thought we could do is just start off by reciting the Apostles' Creed together. So we'll have it up here on the screen. Um, and again, just an opportunity for us to repeat it. I know you're probably familiar with it. Um, but it's a good idea, just a good practice for us to begin uh, saying it together. So let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So just in that last sentence, the one we're going to focus in on today in today's teaching, uh, notice there's a theological order there, right? The first thing it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? Um, from the Holy Spirit proceeds then the church. And then from there, we start to see the elements of personal salvation, right? Things like forgiveness of sin, resurrection of the body, and life of the everlasting. And this is important, right? Because we see in Scripture that both Father and the Son love the church, right? We see that the Holy Spirit, though, is the one who actually created it, right? Jesus redeems it, but the Holy Spirit is the one who creates it. We see that uh, as we look through the New Testament. Uh, but the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, these things 
are often uh, coming about through the practice of the church, through the ministry, as well as the fellowship of the church. These are typically the ways in which people experience and come to know personal salvation through those actions of the church. And so uh, just high level, we're going to take a look at four different aspects. Um, just to help you frame it, we're going to look at and break this down in terms of a new community, a new relationship, a new, ex- new existence, and then finally new fulfillment. So we're going to talk about these. This kind of helps frame our conversation uh, before we jump into that, though, I just want to kind of do a high-level uh, overview, kind of flyby of Scripture as it pertains to uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we'll begin in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, this is not an exhaustive uh, study of the Holy Spirit. There's so many aspects of that. But I guess the best way to start is to, to, as we think about Holy Spirit, we have to remind ourselves this is a who, not a what. All right? We often describe the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit, um, but that often conjures up images, especially if you're talking to someone maybe outside the faith or outside the church, Right, I don't know about you guys, but you know, I, I like Star Wars. I don't know if you guys are any Star Wars maniacs, right? The new Mandalorian just launched season three. Hey, anyway, um, Wednesday nights, so want to come over and watch it at our house, you can't. Um, but when we talk about Holy Spirit, a lot of times people start thinking about like the force, right? May the force be with you, right? It's this like universal like thing, this power that, you know, you can kind of like, if you, if you really are, you know, in tune with it, you can kind of control it and make things happen, right? If you're like a Jedi master, you can like throw things with the force and make things levitate and all that kind of fun stuff. And a lot of times people, that's the kind of way they think about the Holy Spirit is like, wasn't this like this power thing that you can kind of like do fun, weird things with? Um, but that's just so not obviously scriptural and biblical when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Um, first and foremost, Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. It's a person. It's, it's a who, not a what. And uh, I found in my own my kind of journey, one of the things that actually helped, because words matter, was actually taking the the off Holy Spirit, right? When you talk about Holy Spirit, you know, like if you you know, tomorrow you're having a conversation, but man, that Jason, the Jason Mayer last night, he gave a really good message. That would be weird to talk about me that way, right? You just, you wouldn't do that, right? We don't say the Jesus, we say Jesus, right? When you're talking about a person, you just identify them by their name. And so one of the things that's been helpful for me, at least in my walk, is to refer to Holy Spirit as Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, to remind myself that well, this is not a force or this thing or this element, but it's actually a person. And this person that lives inside me, we're going to talk a lot about these things. So um, Old Testament, right? From the beginning, we see Holy Spirit is present. One of, the, one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that Holy Spirit is always active whenever there's creative acts happening, whenever there's sort of creative things, so whether that's with God or with people. So for example, in Genesis 1-2, we read, the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Again, in Exodus, we see the very first time we see someone being filled with Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit being active and the creative element with a person. Uh, we see that in Exodus 31. It says, The Lord also spoke to Moses. Look, I have appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft. Right? This is right before Moses gets the instructions on how to create and design the tabernacle, right? The Lord's dwelling place, the temple uh, that they would have as a, the hot spot of God's presence as they were wandering through the, the wilderness together. And so we see that there's a creative element that Holy Spirit is involved in. Uh, There's also inspiration given to the prophets, the mouthpieces of God. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. So whenever we see and read about prophets in Old Testament speaking on behalf of God or uh, speaking about things that God's concerned about, we always see that being empowered by Holy Spirit. We also see Holy Spirit equipping uh, and enabling God's servants to do things like judges and kings are being equipped and enabled by Holy Spirit. So it says in Judges 13, 25, 
the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him up in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtil. Right, so there's an activity involved with, with Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Again, in Zechariah says, So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. Right? So Holy Spirit is, is active all over the place in the Old Testament. It's important as we embrace this Trinitarian understanding of God being Father, Son, Spirit, that we see not just in New Testament, but in Old Testament, all three aspects of God on display uh, active and, and, and moving in ministry. And then uh, another way we see it in the Old Testament is often Holy Spirit is evoking godliness, not just in individuals, but in communities at large. So in Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see this, the ministry of Holy Spirit is very active in various different ways. Now, as we jump ahead, turn the page into New Testament, Right? We now understand a much fuller understanding, have some deeper meaning going on with, with Holy Spirit. One of the things that's interesting is that the purpose is identical to God the Father. Right? Both Father and Spirit are, are, are unified in their sole purpose, which is to see glory and praise come to the Son. Like that is the design and that is the aspect of the Holy Spirit, just to point to Jesus. And so we see Holy Spirit active from the beginning to the end of Jesus' life. He's there in the beginning from conception, right? The virgin birth. The Holy Spirit is there and present at conception. He's there all throughout his life and ministry, right? When he gets baptized in the Jordan, right? We see the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. They see that he is spirit-filled, but he's also the spirit giver in his ministry. He's often breathing out, which is another symbolic uh, aspect of Holy Spirit. And we see him all the way to his death. Holy Spirit is again present and active. In Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. So from beginning to end of Jesus's ministry, his earthly life, we see Holy Spirit active from the beginning to the end. After he's gone, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He says, as, as Misael read for us, is that he says, it's good that I leave. It's actually better for you. Now, if you guys have ever like, when you're reading scripture, sometimes you read something and you're like, I don't agree with that, right? Have you ever, do you guys ever do that with scripture? Or do you feel like that's like, blasphemy if you like to say I don't agree with scripture right but it's like I don't know if I'm like sitting there listening to Jesus like it's actually better if I leave I'm like no I don't think so like Jesus I want you right next to me I want to follow you around wherever you go like no it would it would definitely be better for me if you were still here like this is one of those things where I'm like I don't know how I could possibly receive that as good news right I've never you know I've never walked next to the bodily Jesus right I've never had that experience but I can imagine like the disciples were thinking like this can't be better for you to leave and yet he said no no it's going to be better and we know that if he said it, it's true, because if, if I leave, if I don't leave, I won't send the counselor. But if I do leave, I'm going to give you the comfort. I'm going to give you the spirit so he can empower you to do the things that you've seen me do. And so we see Holy Spirit acting as Jesus' agent all throughout uh, the, 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 the New Testament after Jesus ascends to heaven. Um, you know, we, we read about Acts, right? And that, that title is interesting, right? Because a lot of times it's like, well, Acts of who? Like, who is, who's the acts happening of? And, and if you read through it, it's like, well, is this the acts of the apostles? Because it seems like they're the ones that are, you know, it's about them and the ministry they have. But a better way to understand acts is the acts of the spirit of Jesus. That would be a, a much fuller and probably more accurate title for that book that we have in our scriptures because we see Holy Spirit empowering all the activities. He's the one birthing the church and we get to see its formation happening. And so we see Jesus, Holy Spirit acting truly as an ambassador, right? I don't know if you guys have ever... Um, you know, into politics or things like that. But you see uh, these, these people that are ambassadors, they literally are bodily representations of a country that live in a different country, 
right? So an ambassador of Zimbabwe lives here in the United States. When he's here in this country, like the embassy that he lives in or works out of is considered the, the territory of Zimbabwe. It's like actually their country, that little plot of land. And he represents that country and speaks on behalf of them to everyone here in the United States. Well, this is exactly like Holy Spirit. He's the envoy or the ambassador of Jesus to each and every one of us and to a, a broken and watching world. So we see clearly throughout scripture that he's, he's present, but then what about his activity? What about his ministry? Um, there's a few things, and again, just a short list here, but one, we, we see Holy Spirit convincing us that Jesus of the Gospels, of the New Testament, Jesus, this Christ that we read about, is he actually exists and he is who he says he is. That's not something that you and I can decide without Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, that our eyes are blinded, the, our spiritual eyes, the hearts are blinded to the reality of who God really is. It's only by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we can actually see that and acknowledge that and believe that to be true. Uh, he also assures us that as believers, that we are in fact God's children and that we are heirs with Christ. Paul in, in Romans says that we actually get the same things that Jesus gets because of the, what, what he's done for us. The Holy Spirit also moves us to bear witness to Christ that because of the good news, because of what we've received, our natural response to that is to want to tell other people about it. Just a natural outflow of like, man, I've got this amazing thing in my life. I want to, I want to tell you about Jesus. He's incredible. I want you to get to know him. Another thing that he does is he gives every Christian one or more gifts to bring into reality the every member ministry in the church, right? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, that we're all different members of the same body. Right? One of the ways that the church is described as the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit has given each of us at least one, if not multiple gifts that we are to use for the betterment of the entire group. And that, what that means is, is that if we don't participate in the life of the church, and when I say that, I don't mean like the services. What I mean is like the fellowship, like life together, having meals together and challenging each other, praying for each other, confessing our sins to one another, like the one another's of scripture. That's what it means to be in life together that when we don't participate in that, we're actually denying other believers with the gift that the Holy Spirit has given to us that we're supposed to share with others. Whether that gift is teaching, whether that's encouragement, whether that's, uh, you know, more, more fantastical gifts, however you look at that, when we don't share those with others, we're denying each other the opportunity to receive the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he wants to work in through a body of believers. That's why we talked about a little bit last year that we want everyone to understand that we all have a place in the ministry. That it's not a couple of people, professional Christians that are doing all the work so we can all be entertained, but that our job is to equip us all for the works of the ministry, that we're all called into full-time ministry. So what are the evidences of Holy Spirit? How do you know that he's active and moving in your life? What are the signs? Well, they're not merely mystical raptures or visions or supposed revelations or even just healings and tongues and apparent miracles. Because the thing we have to be cautious of is because Satan, likewise, he can produce these same things, right? 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, not some, every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders serving the lie. we got to be cautious that just because some of these things are happening, that's not in and of itself just evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving, right? Um, we have to be careful. And I think what's really the only sign of what it means to have Holy Spirit moving in a midst of a community of people. J.I. Packer, he, he has this quote, I think, that really nails it. He says this, The only sure signs of, of, are that the Christ of the Bible is acknowledged, trusted, love for his grace, and serve for his glory, and that believers actually turn from sin to the life of holiness, which is, which is Christ's image and his people. That the, the, the gifts, all the fantastical gifts, or maybe the more mundane gifts, however you kind of frame that, 
if it doesn't produce that, if it doesn't produce people repenting and turning to God and pursuing a life of holiness, then it's at show at best, or perhaps it's even satanic at worst. And so we, again, we have to just be cautious on what we say, well, that's Holy Spirit or that's not Holy Spirit, but it ultimately it should bring us into a, a fullness of knowing who Christ is and wanting to live a life to follow him, ultimately. So now that the sort of high overviews over, let's, let's jump in uh, to these different aspects uh, of the creed. So the first thing, new community. What does it mean? What does Holy Spirit mean when he says new community? For, so this phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, this is the first time and the only time in the, the creed that we have a, a divide amongst Roman Catholics and Protestants. Um, this is something that we both say. We both believe in the Holy Catholic Church, but we mean vastly different things when we say that. And I know uh, when this phrase was, was on our website or it is on our website, people are like, wait, are we Catholic or not? People are getting questions about that. And so I just want to kind of unpack that a little bit. Um, I'm going to have a chart here. I'm going to show you in a second. Uh, the, the Nicene Creed, which is also on our website, goes into a little bit more depth and a little more fullness of, of teaching on Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things it says is that it's the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. And so uh, I just have this chart here for you. I'll show you. Um, and again, this isn't like an exhaustive list of things that are different between Roman Catholics and Protestants. You can just do a Google search and find that pretty easily. But I just kind of want to kind of walk through each of these words in this phrase just to help us understand a little bit. Hopefully it gives you a little more clarity. So uh, when, when you say holy, uh, from a Catholic perspective, the thinking is that that produces saintly people and that we're kept from radical sin, that we're actually not capable of certain sins because we're holy, right? God's consecrated us. Whereas from the Protestant understanding, what that means is that, yes, we've been consecrated by God, but we're still, com we're still capable of grievous sin. I think that if you just like, think about your own life, like that would be true of your experience, I would guess. Of course, you don't have to go far. You can read any kind of like headline and see pretty quickly like, oh yeah, like people are still capable of grievous sin. Now Catholic, that word, uh, again, for the Roman Catholic faith means uh, it, it's a worldwide spread, but it's also holding in faith and trust for everyone within the church. Like Rome is the center of all things in many senses when you talk about Catholic. Um, for Protestants, it's more of an embracing of Christians everywhere right? That regardless of denomination, there's an embracing that we're all part of. So in this sense, from a Protestant standpoint, Catholic simply just means universal. That's what that, that word, you know, just the definition actually means. Now apostolic, this is where we start to see some really um, divergent ideas and beliefs between the two faiths. So with the Catholic church, the idea of being apostolic means that we, they get their orders, they originate from the apostles, but it also adds to that as authority, non-biblical items like the Deuterocanon books that are part of the, the Catholic Bible, but also Roman tradition. So Roman tradition is seen as just as authoritative as scripture itself. Again, the difference here with, from a Protestant standpoint is that we embrace the apostles' doctrine unmixed, meaning scripture as, it's, as we've been given it, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, we view this as the one and only authoritative source of truth. And so you may have heard of a term like sola scriptura before, which just means scripture alone or only scripture. Uh, that's a difference between the two. And then finally, church. Again, the Roman Catholics see the Roman Catholic Church as the one true organized body of baptized persons, and they're in communion with the Pope. And the Pope, another name for the Pope is the vicar uh, in, of Christ, which simply means Christ's representative, um, and also acknowledge the teaching and ruling authority of the Episcopal hierarchy. So the, the, they would subscribe to that type of belief. Again, from a Protestant standpoint, um, the church simply means the worldwide fellowship of believing people whose head is Christ without any specific ecclesiastical definition, right? Because we have lots of different denominations with lots of different types of 
of leadership and order of leadership and that sort of thing. So that's not a prerequisite when it comes to the Protestant views. So just a couple quick things on the apostolic stuff. On the Catholic side, just again, for us to understand, um, some of the non-biblical doctrines and teachings are the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So there's also belief that she also was conceived without sin, um, which again, there's no scripture to support that, but that's part of the prevailing belief in, in the Catholic faith. Also the Assumption of Mary. Uh, many believe in the Catholic faith that she didn't die, that she was brought up into heaven without having, having died first, uh, which we do see evidence of that happening in the Bible, not of Mary, but of other people being brought up and caught up into heaven before dying. Uh, but that's just another belief that has been um, developed over the years in the Catholic faith. Also, the mass sacrifice uh, is a little bit different. So when you take the Eucharist uh, at a Roman Catholic um, mass, they believe that when a, an ordained priest prays over the elements, the bread and the juice, that it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ and that you're actually ingesting Christ's body, Christ's blood. So they would also call that like a bloodless sacrifice, that meaning Christ is sacrificing again. He's not shedding blood for you, but it's a bloodless sacrifice, right? And so there's some reasons why they believe that. Uh, they also believe in uh, papal infallibility, uh, meaning that the Pope in certain situations can declare things, um, and they call that ex cathedra, not a catheter, sorry guys, it's a different thing, um, not as painful. Um, where it basically just means of the chair. So when the Pope is sitting in the chair, he can declare things and the Roman Catholics believe that it's, he's saying something that's infallible, meaning without error, that he has the capacity, just like scripture, to speak something now today that would be considered as doctrine or as truth moving forward. Uh, it's actually one of the, it's where um, about 500 years ago where the idea of purgatory came from. One of the Popes declared that there is such a thing as purgatory and so now there's that belief as well. Um, and they also have veneration of saints, meaning they pray to saints, so like the saint of travel and the saint of this and that. There's about 400 different saints in the Roman Catholic tradition. And so again, scripture reveals to us, we pray to Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, we pray to God, that's it. We don't pray to anybody else. So there's just, again, it's just high level, some of the differences uh, as we look at that. So why do I say all that? Because again, we say the same Apostles' Creed, but again, we mean very different things when we say that. Um, what, we, what we believe, and when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church is that we're confessing that Jesus Christ himself is the church's one foundation and that all who truly trust in him as Savior and Lord are by God's grace members of this church and that the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. That's what we mean when we say Holy Catholic Church. So hopefully that's helpful, clears up a little bit of that with you. Um, second part of that phrase, communion of saints. Um, again, it's not veneration of saints. We're not saying we commune with those that have died before us and that we're having communion with them. The, the word saint in the New Testament simply means baptized believers of a, a local congregation. So if, you were, if you've been baptized, you're part of a local church, you're considered a saint, right, as a follower of Christ. So we say communion of saints. What we mean is that we're just sharing life together. Like we're practicing the things that God wants us to practice. Like we're opening the word together. We're enjoying the sacraments together. We're worshiping together. We're praying together. We're just enjoying in the life of God together. That's what communion of saints uh, literally means for us. Um, now, <clears throat> where you fall on this, I think I know where most of you guys fall, whether you're Roman Catholic or Protestant, but um, we look at the New Testament, it's with, without question, Scripture supports the Protestant view, without question. The question really is, is whether or not the New Testament is final, right? Like, do you believe that this is a closed canon, a closed Scripture, meaning that there, we're not adding anything to this? If that's the case, then you're going to fall into the Protestant view. If you're saying, well, no, there could be more stuff that's revealed as the truth from God, then you could possibly say that I believe that what some of the Catholics are, are talking about with these things. Um, we do see that the church appears and the Trinitarian relationship, right? When we talk about the family of God the Father, that's another way of describing the church. When we say the body of Christ, we see that the Son is, is, is modeled. When we talk about the church, 
And then, of course, we also see the church being referred to as the temple or the dwelling place of Holy Spirit. So we see all three uh, elements of the Godhead present when we describe the church. Um, the way I would describe it is that provided the sacraments are administered, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper, then from a Protestant standpoint, there's no organizational mandate that's required in order to say that this is a church of Christ. Um, and I guess I would just say this when it comes to our brothers and sisters in, in the Roman Catholic uh, Church. Do, do I believe there are some men and women who are um, following Jesus the best they know how in the Roman Catholic? Absolutely. 100%. I believe I'll see some of them for in eternity. 100%. Are there some people that are off track and have been led astray? I do believe that as well. Um, I guess I would just say we should heed the words of Jesus uh, when it comes to how we interact. Um, there's a scene in Luke where the disciples are coming to Jesus and they say, hey, there was this guy and he was like casting out demons in your name. And we like told him, you got to stop because he wasn't following us. He wasn't with us. And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, don't stop him because whoever is not against you is for you. It's really interesting that Jesus would respond that way. And when it comes to things like this, like the differences between you know, Roman Catholics and Protestants, I think this is probably a good guide for us. Um, listen, if you are given the influence and authority that you can, you can like redefine the Catholic faith and the billion people or so that follow it and get them online with scripture, then you should do that. Now, I don't think any of us in this room have that kind of authority or power. Maybe one day, I don't know, maybe God will see it in his, in his wisdom to give us that kind of authority. What I would say that what, what influence you do have, what God has entrusted you with, if you have any relationships with those within the Catholic faith, then you should minister to them. You should love them and build a relationship and God willing, open, he opens a door for you, then, then lead them in, into the truth and show them what scripture has to say. I know that having been raised Catholic, I didn't read my Bible, but very often I did it whenever I was in church because it was the one reading of the day. And so there it was, but I didn't actually open it up and read it for myself. I, I would just say whatever God has entrusted you with and be faithful to that as, as it pertains to it. Um, but here's just something to define. I think, how's the church doing? Like big C church, like what's the state of the church worldwide? It comes down to how are local congregations doing? What are you being faithful to and with, with what God has entrusted you? Ultimately, each congregation is a visible outcrop of the one church universal. Uh, and we're all called to serve God and men in humility and even perhaps in humiliation while living with the prospect of glory to come. We know the glory is coming. And so we always have that in view. Um, we should be spirit filled for worship and witness, active in love and care for both insiders and outsiders alike. We should be self-supporting. We should be self-propagating. We should be growing and expanding. And each congregation is to be a spearhead of divine counterattack to a broken and lost rebel world, ultimately. So that's the new community. Second thing, what's the new relationship? Second, uh, next phrase in the, in, the, in the creed is that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Uh, now I've shared with you guys, I'm, a, I'm an introvert by nature, so I enjoy being around people, but after a night like this, it'll be really important for me to go home and be by myself. Just, I just need that. And some of you can relate. Some of you are like, that sounds terrible. I wanna be here all night long. Um, but I've found that there, if, there's, if, you, if you ever want, if you ever find yourself like not wanting to get invited to something, and you don't have to like, you know, raise your hand that that's you, but like, there's no like quicker way to like get uninvited to something than to say this very simple question. Like just next time, you know, you try it out if you want. You're at a party, you're at a gathering, you're having like small talk, you know, just look to that person next to you and say, hey, what, like, what, what's, what's the sin you're really struggling with right now? Like there's no faster way to get like canceled or like not get invited back than to throw that S-I-N word out there, right? Like, hey, what's your sin, right? Um, here's the thing, sin though is everyone's problem. Uh, that no one wants to talk about or hear about. 
And I love that, you know, and, and Kevin saw, by the way, I don't know if you guys knew that was like Kevin saw, he wrote that earlier. He didn't really, he like, wasn't really clear in that. And I know he's not like doing it for his own credit, but like he wrote that, that was awesome. So I thought it was cool that he said in that, like, what's my sin? Like, like we, we shouldn't be afraid of that word as followers of Christ. Like it's what the Bible calls our condition. It calls it sin. And I know it's not popular in culture. And if you say that word, it's like, oh, it's like a lightning rod. Like it's just like people repulsed by it. But I think it's important we understand what it is. Like what is sin? First uh, John 3, 4 says, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So there's like a straightforward, like sin is this, it's lawlessness. Now it is lawlessness, but it's also a whole lot more. There are so many facets and aspects to sin, but it is lawlessness in relation to God as the rule giver, right? Like He's the one who gave the law, and so therefore when we sin, we go against that law, we are considered lawless. Uh, but it's also rebellion, and sin is rebellion in relation to God as the rightful ruler, right? He's the one who, who's, who's, it's his creation, and he's like, this is how I want it to go. And so when we say, I don't want to do it your way, I don't want to listen to your definition of good and evil, I want to define that for myself, that's just rebellion. That's saying, I don't want to do it your way, God, even though you're the rightful ruler of this thing you called creation, this universe I'm living in. Uh, sin is also missing the mark. It's a really tra uh, straightforward translation of it. Uh, missing the mark as it pertains to God as our designer. He made us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Scripture's clear on that. It says that his thoughts about us are more than all the grains of sand in the world. He knows every hair on our head. He knows us when we're in our mother's womb. He knows every day of our life from beginning to end. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so when you choose not to follow his design for your life, you are missing the mark. You're not becoming who he's made you to be. Like when you try to be someone else, you try and copy someone else's style, you are not living to the trueness of who God has made you to be. And of course, now we see that just going crazy with, with gender issues and identity issues that people are just, they're missing the mark of who God made them. And they're fighting against their own nature of who God has created them to be. Uh, sin is also guilt as it pertains to God as judge. Uh, God is perfectly just. He cares about justice. He cares about righteousness. And he's going to make all uh, bad things good. He's going to make all the wrong things uh, right. And so when we sin, we are in a guilty standing as it pertains to God as our judge. And then finally, sin is uh, our uncleanness next to in relation to God as the Holy One. He is perfect, utterly unique. Unlike anything else in all of the universe and all of creation, God is unique, utterly. And so when we sin, we fall into an unclean state comparatively to his perfectness and his righteousness. And the problem with sin is it's pervasive. Like it, it infects every area of our life. Right? It's, it's, it's in our desires as well as our deeds. It's in our motives as well as our actions. Like all areas of our life, it's just, it, it's infested our lives. And I think one of the ways I, th I think about it, it's like a minefield, right? You can imagine like a beach, you know, and it's like, hey, there's mines, be careful, like don't walk anywhere. It's like, you know, like the more we try to like avoid sin, the more often we find that we, it's like too late, like we stepped in another one, right? And all of a sudden it's like figuratively like we're blown to pieces as it pertains to like sinning against God and against people. It's like, I don't want to step over here, but now I've stepped over there and like it just blows up in our faces. And so that's a problem, right? Sin is a problem because it puts us in a place that we are under God's wrath. Uh, Paul is pretty clear on that at the beginning of Romans. He says this, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. Now, because he is perfect and just, when we find ourselves in that place of sin, we are now under his wrath. That's a problem. Um, that's the bad news. But thankfully, when we follow Jesus, all bad news is always has some good news. And the good news is, is that our sins can be forgiven. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, Lord, if you kept account of iniquities, another word for sin, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be revered. 
That word revealed can also be understood as worshiped rightly. Like I can worship you properly because Lord, you are the one who forgives sins. And so here's the thing, like maybe you don't agree um, that, you know, your sins, sins need to be forgiven from like a God perspective, but here's the reality. Like if you have sinned, you're also infected with one of the worst things about being a human, which is called a guilty conscience or a bad conscience, right? This is the most wretched thing at times of the human condition, right? Because nothing you do on the outside, like the image management or curation you have, your social media feed, no matter what you put out there for people, like it's still infecting you on the inside. It doesn't alleviate the guilt that you feel and the bad feelings you have. And, and then as you get older, and this is just, you know, just a, a glimpse of the future for some of you, the more self-aware you become, like the more reality hits you that you failed people and you failed God. Like the deeper you get to understand the well of your sin that you, you find yourself in. And there's no like behavioral modification that fixes it because it's a lot of it's already been done that you're, you feel remorse for. And so without forgiveness, if you truly are not receiving forgiveness, you'll never have any peace because your, your insides will just torment you of all the ways you failed and messed up. And so we see forgiveness in scripture ultimately is about restoring relationships because every sin you or I have ever committed has always been a relational sin in nature. You've either sinned against God or you sinned against people, often both. And so when we see forgiveness, what we see is in a personal setting, it's bringing us back into relationship with the person that we've hurt or the person that's hurt us. And there's really a, a couple of things about forgiveness that are important just to touch on. One is forgiveness at its core is compassionate because what it means is that someone is showing unmerited kindness. Like when you've hurt someone or someone's hurt you, in order for you to forgive them, you have to choose to be kind to them in a way that they don't deserve. But forgiveness begins there. It's also creative. So I love that about forgiveness because someone has ruined a relationship, whether you or someone else. And when you forgive, you're actually creatively restoring that relationship. You're, you're taking the first step to saying, hey, we can have actually a different relationship. It's going to be better, hopefully, because of what we've now been through. But it's a creative act. You're bringing something out of nothing or something out of what was once destroyed. And of course, forgiveness is also very costly. We only need to look at the cross and what it costs God to forgive us of our sins, to know that when you truly forgive someone, it will cost you something. But the thing about Scripture that's great is that we don't just stop at forgiveness. We continue on and we learn about this thing called justification. And this is where, again, we, we see some divergence between us and the Roman Catholics. But the New Testament speaks about justification. Justification is like forgiveness plus. Um, I don't know if you guys, if you guys like sports. Um, I find a really frustrating thing these days. If I go on like ESPN.com and, and want to read like articles, I can't because everything is like under the ESPN plus like vault now, like the stuff that used to be free to read. Now I have to pay more for that. And it's like everywhere is doing that, right? You can like Disney, but if you really like it, you got to get Disney plus, right? Like everything's a plus now. Well, scripture also has some pluses. There's called, it's called justification. Justification is forgiveness plus, right? So if forgiveness is just being alleviated or washed of what's been happening in the past, justification is actually looking ahead. It's acceptance and the gifts of a righteous person's status for the future, right? So you're actually being able to take hold of something that's been declared for you in what's to come. Um, it's God's final decision on which he never goes back. And because of that nature of justification, it's our assurance of what we look ahead for. It's the basis of our assurance. And again, this is where uh, we see some divergence because this idea of grace and this idea of forgiveness is only by faith. You can only receive forgiveness by faith. It has to be that way. And this is where, again, the, the Roman Catholics traditionally they've missed out on the decisiveness of God's of present justification. This is where things like purgatorial pain have come from or the idea of sacraments or good works. The Apostle Paul, when teaching on this 
forgiveness and justification. He taught it clearly. He taught that our full and final acceptance or our justification, our, our right standing with God, is of course through the forgiveness of God. It's here and it's now. And most importantly, it's by faith only. Of course, it has to be only by faith because only Christ's righteousness is the basis of pardon and peace in Christ. And of course, his gifts are received only by embracing that same faith. You see, faith means not only believing God's truth, but it's ultimately about trusting Jesus, trusting Christ, taking what he's offered us, and then walking in victory, triumphing in the knowledge of what we now have received. So two, two segments left to go uh, in this final sentence in the creed. We move now to the resurrection of the body. This is the new existence. Now, in the naturalistic, materialistic, secular world that we find ourselves among, death uh, is the ultimate evil. It's, it has to be the ultimate evil to materialism and secular humanism. See, if, if self-fulfillment and pursuit of comfort and pleasure are primary objectives, and they are in that, in that worldview. If it's just a materialistic world, there's nothing after this world. If we're, uh, there's no spiritual element to our existence, then uh, all we're trying to do is live for the here and now, this idea of up and to the right, that as time goes on, that our life should get better in all measure, all ways that we would uh, see it worthwhile to keep track of. Of course, those things, comfort and, and the pursuit of joy or pursuit of happiness and pleasure, those are decisively defeated by death. Now, this is an area that we actually have some similarities to the secular worldview as followers of Christ because our scriptures, they also see death not as a friend, but as a destroyer. Um, now, this is a fundamental human problem, this idea, this understanding that we are going to die, every one of us. And so the reality is if, if it really is final, meaning that that's all there is, it's this life, then there's death, that's it then self-indulgence is the only worthwhile pursuit. And the Apostle Paul, he's a realist. He, he taps into that realism uh, when he shares in Corinthians 1. He says, look, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. Uh, that's Corinthians 1, 15 through 30, uh, 15-32. Now, this is where Christianity, uh, of all the world religions and views of the world, really stands out. We don't just see death as an enemy, but we also see death as conquered. See, Christian faith is, is hope resting on fact. That fact, namely, is that Jesus rose from the grave, not just in spirit, but bodily. His body rose from the grave, and now he lives eternally in heaven. And so the hope then is that when Jesus comes back, that day, when, of course, when history stops and the world, this world ends as we know it, he will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body, Philippians 3.21. Now, lest we get too discouraged as we look at our own uh, meager frames. Uh, it's not our old bodies, the ones we have now like patched up, right? Uh, but these are new bodies fit for new people, new creations. Um, God is currently renewing us inwardly through our spiritual formation and growth so that we can soon receive bodies to match the growth that's happening on the inside. Uh, now, um, I think some of you are aware I've been um, trying to run more, as I've been thinking about running this ultra marathon with some folks in our community. Um, and no doubt, um, like me, you're, you probably both love your body because it's part of you, but you also get really mad at it and the way it limits you. Um, and so we should, you know, I mean, my, my knees been bothering me. I've been having some calf problems. Um, but it's so encouraging. It's good to know that God's aim in giving us second rate physical frames here 
is more of a preparatory thing. It's to prepare us for managing better bodies uh, in the life to come. Uh, I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, they give you unimpressive horses to learn to ride on, and only when you're ready for it are you allowed an animal that will gallop and jump, right? I mean, that's the bodies that we have. We don't know everything about them. We have very little to go on in Scripture. Um, we see Jesus walking, just sort of phasing through a wall as it pertains, just kind of showing up in a room. Not exactly sure, sure how that's going to work, but it's definitely something to look forward to. Um, but as we think about this idea of being, um, you know, resurrected bodies, we, we have to reject the unbiblical view of reality that we're merely immortal souls and we're sort of trapped in these bodies. Like the, the material is bad. But we know that's not biblical because just read Genesis 1, first page of the Bible. God made everything. He makes everything matter. The things that we're made up of, cells, atoms, these things, this, this substance we call matter, God made it all. And when he made all this stuff, remember, every time he made something, he said, it is good. So matter is not bad. Like our bodies aren't bad. I think it's better to understand humans as these psychophysical units where our moral state, right, or maybe what we consider our soul, perhaps, uh, that's directly expressed by our physical behavior, right? So we're not this like noble soul, right, where we can just like excuse the shameful things that we do by blaming them on this like body that, you know, is gosh, it's so uncouth and you know, it's the shell that I live in. The better biblical understanding is not that you have a body, but you are a body. And of course, we know this to be true because remember what Paul encourages us or warns us uh, that we're going to be judged by what we do in our bodies. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, not just in our thoughts and our motives, but actually how we live out our lives. We will be judged according to those things. So, it's a good thing that we look forward to the resurrection of the body. And then the final phrase uh, in the Apostles' Creed in this section uh, is the new fulfillment. This is the life everlasting. Um, it's somewhat shameful for me to admit, but when I was uh, in my life, a period of time where I was uh, really a practicing atheist, one of the stumbling blocks that I had towards coming to faith was that I, I, I had a hard time seeing eternity as anything but boring. I just couldn't imagine an endless existence as being permanently interesting or worthwhile. It's sad now as I think about that, but we have to remember the creed doesn't just mean simply endless existence, right? I mean, demons and lost souls, they're going to have that too. But rather, the life everlasting that we think about as, as Jesus talked about and, and promised us and, and told us to look forward to it, it's the final joy in which he entered into. Uh, Hebrews 12.2 uh, it says like this, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him. Think about that, the joy. That's why he did what he did. He endured the cross. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, all for the joy that lay before them, for what he was looking at. And of course, remember as well, his promise to those that would follow him. He says, anyone who would serve me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. He says, so that same joy that Jesus had before him, it's also before us should we choose to follow him. So as we understand those passages, the, the essence of heaven, this idea of life everlasting, what it's all about, is about being with Jesus. Now, of course, a great question, maybe not a great question, but a question often asked is what shall we do in heaven, right? Are we just going to lounge around and, you know, this idea of being in the clouds, harps and angels, that's so, that's just Greek mythology. That's not biblical theology. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think we're going to do some different things. I think we're going to worship. We're going to work, think, probably communicate. Uh, we're going to enjoy activities. We're going to enjoy beauty, people. 
in God. But first and foremost, we shall see and we shall love Jesus, our Savior, our Master, and our friend, because that is the essence of what life everlasting is about. And it's one of the reasons why uh, our mission statement, which is practicing the way of Jesus together in Sonoma, and the way we express that, three ways we look at that, the first begins with be with Jesus. And one of the reasons, the many reasons why we uh, phrase that, use that language, is because we're practicing what we're going to be doing for eternity. That is to be with Jesus. Now, thankfully, um, fast forward to my life, uh, now following Jesus, I find that the that I'm walk as I walk with God and as I get older, I do find that I appreciate God and people as well as good and lovely things more and more intensely. Like I just get more joy out of God. I get more joy out of people. I get more joy out of just the things of life. And so now instead of sort of reluctantly thinking about what an endless eternity might look like, it's pure delight to think that the enjoyment I'm having now will continue and increase in some capacity literally forever. I mean, I look forward to an eternal life with enthusiasm, right? Not as an escape like from this like dreary existence. But my life, it just continues to grow in joy from knowing God and people and the good things that God and people create and from doing good things that are worthwhile for God and myself. And yet, despite my, my reach, my desire, it, it exceeds my grasp. You see, my relationships with God, maybe you've experienced this as well, relationship with God and with others are never as rich and as full as I want them to be. Right? There's always more than I thought to discover in great books, music, great food, uh, just travel and the beauty of nature. Now look, you know, what, what will heaven be like? I, I, I don't, I can't possibly imagine. I don't really think it's a worthwhile effort uh, exercise to try. But what I do know is that it is where we will find all of our heart's desire, that our joy with God and with each other, joy with just the finality and the, the end of all frustration and distress and pain, and that everything we could want will be supplied for us. Um, I was asked once by a child, you know, will there be puppies and ice cream in heaven? And my response was, well, if you want them, they'll be there. Now, unless you think I was just sidestepping the response and trying to take the easy way out, uh, there is some truth to that. You see, it's it's a witness to the truth, that statement that I don't know if there'll be puppies and ice cream, but what I do know is that there won't be any felt needs or longings that go unsatisfied. So in reality, if, if, if we desire puppies and ice cream, then those are things that we will be supplied with. I can't possibly know what it is that our wants will actually be. We could hardly know that, but that's that's the promise that God has given to us. And so as we just um, wrap up this teaching, I just want think of the moments, uh, those great moments in your life. We've, we've all had them, right? Where you're belly laughing with friends until you cry, uh, a sunset that just this takes your breath away, uh, a meal that just with the flavors just pop in your mouth, makes you want to get up and like do a, do a happy dance or a warm embrace from a loved one, right? Just any of those times when all, all you could say in the moment is, I don't want this to ever end. And yet in every one of those moments of situations, inevitably it did end. But you see, eternity with God, however, is utterly different. You see, that joy, being with God forever without end, it will never end. And that's the joy I'm hoping to obtain. By God's grace, may that be the same joy that you receive as well. Mm-hmm.